What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Speed of Sound is a production of iHeartRadio. Hi, and welcome to Speed of Sound, the show that breaks down the stories behind the pop songs and sounds that top the charts and shape the soundtrack of generations. I'm Steve Greenberg. From the time I was a kid, I listened to a lot of records. I'd tape my favorite songs off the radio onto cassettes, and then I'd catalog everything into a loose-leaf binder, which eventually had a couple thousand songs in it. Fast forward a few years, and I found myself DJing for my college radio station. 61 WAMU, welcome to another thrill-packed edition of Stevie G's Beach Party. And later on, being a club DJ, writing about music, teaching a college course about pop music history, running record labels, and even producing a few hits over several decades. Mostly, though, I'm still listening to a lot of records. And I'm happy to be here to tell the stories behind some of the most important moments in music history, the ones that really changed everything. Today, we're tackling the pulsating genre of subculture and dance music that defined the 1970s, as we recall the rise and fall of disco. In its day, disco proved to be one of the most provocative genres of pop music. It was sexy, it was flashy, it was indulgent. But even back then, few really understood where it came from and what it was rooted in. People tended to either love it or loathe it. So given how polarizing disco proved to be, it's only fitting that the story of the disco era began with a riot and also ended with a riot. And the two riots occurred almost precisely 10 years apart. The first one was the June 1969 uprising at the Stonewall Inn in New York's Greenwich Village. 
Now, as unbelievable as it may seem, in 1969, it was illegal in New York for people of the same sex to dance together. In fact, to ensure that all male dancing sessions didn't occur, there was a New York law on the books stipulating that there needed to be at least one woman for each three men in a discotheque, so it wasn't a male-only dance. Think how insane that sounds today. But back then, it meant the gay nightlife, by necessity, took place in seedy bars which were willing to break the law. And of course, that meant the constant threat of raids by the police who would arrest patrons for numerous supposed infractions, including same-sex dancing. Gay men back then regularly went out on the weekends with enough cash in their pocket to post bail in case they got arrested. Now, one of those bars, the Stonewall Inn, was raided in the summer of 1969. It was the night after Judy Garland's New York funeral, and well, Judy Garland was a major gay icon. Emotions ran high, and instead of allowing themselves to be pushed around and arrested, as in the past, the patrons of the Stonewall Inn fought back, which came as a big surprise to the police, who had never experienced resistance from the gay community before. A violent riot ensued. The Stonewall Riot is, of course, remembered as the beginning of the gay rights movement in the United States. The first time, really, that the gay community said, we're not going to allow ourselves to be pushed to the corner. But one point that gets lost these days when we tell the story of the uprising that night is that the Stonewall Inn was, above everything else, a dance bar where people danced to the tunes played on the jukebox. It was a place where gay men, lesbians, and drag queens could all dance with each other with impunity. In fact, patrons remember it as perhaps the only bar in New York where gay men could even slow dance with each other, sharing that kind of affection in public. So the violence that erupted in reaction to the police raid that night was motivated in the immediate moment, at least partly, by the crowd feeling that their freedom to just go out and dance was being threatened. And in the aftermath of Stonewall, one of the first accomplishments of that movement in New York City was that they got the laws banning same-sex dancing repealed. Almost immediately after that, underground gay discos began to spring up, open to only those in the know. Okay, so before we get into the disco scene in the early 1970s in New York, it's worth taking a little detour to explore the history of discotheques themselves, starting with the origin of the word discotheque itself. It's a French word which translates as a library of phonograph records. And La Discothèque was actually the name of the first disco that ever opened. It was a clandestine dance club in Paris during the World War II Nazi occupation. At La Discothèque, they played jazz records. Jazz having been outlawed by the Nazis because it was music created by African Americans and Jews. Consequently, jazz became a real signifier of dissent in the French resistance, and a lot of illicit clubs sprang up, where records were played in secret. In the post-war years, the same underground exclusive sensibility arrived in New York City when a man named Olivier Coquelin, who was a French expatriate, opened Le Club, which actually was America's first discotheque, on New Year's Eve in 1960. The club was pretty successful, but discotheques became a lot more popular with the advent of the twist, which was danced by jet setters at a club called the Peppermint Lounge in Midtown Manhattan. As we covered in our twist episode of Speed of Sound, the thing about the twist was that it was the first dance you danced alone 
without touching your partner, making it both scandalous and a huge sensation. Celebrities from Marilyn Monroe to the Beatles were seen in the gossip pages, dancing the twist at the Peppermint Lounge. After the twist craze died down, the beautiful people moved on to a new club called Arthur, opened by a woman named Sybil Burton, who was the wife Richard Burton left in order to marry Elizabeth Taylor. Sybil Burton gave her club the name Arthur after a scene from the Beatles movie, A Hard Day's Night, when a reporter asked George Harrison, uh, What would you call that uh, hairstyle you're wearing? And George Harrison said, Arthur. Arthur was the very first club to employ a velvet rope to keep people out, which, of course, just made more people want to get in. Because getting into Arthur meant you were special, at least for one night. Meanwhile, inside the club, the DJ, Terry Knoll, was a real innovator. He popularized the idea of mixing records using two turntables to keep the music going without a gap. And of course, this is something DJs do until this day. As the 60s wore on, discotheques became absorbed into the hippie scene and they featured psychedelic light shows and such to accompany the high provided by LSD and other drugs. But by the end of the 60s, in the spirit of do-your-own-thing, freeform body swaying had really taken the place of actual dances, and so discotheques fell out of favor. And that brings us back up to 1970, where the gay clubs that opened after the Stonewall riot reinvented the discotheque experience yet again. As the 70s dawned, there were a lot of clubs operating in New York, but a few really stand out for the contributions made by their DJs. One of the first to hit the scene was The Loft, which David Mancuso opened in his downtown loft on Valentine's Day, 1970, by throwing a party which he called Love Saves the Day that has gone down as legend. The name Love Saves the Day itself was a play on LSD, and Mancuso, a mere six months after Woodstock, was bringing that hippie vibe into the 70s by mixing it with dance floor grooves. The loft literally was in the loft where David Mancuso lived. Attending a party there felt like being in someone's living room because that's what it was. Bobby Shaw, who later in the 70s became a disco promotions man for Warner Brothers Records, recalls the scene. It was like a living room that became a party room. You know, balloons all over the place, there was food there, you know, the dance floor was big enough to accommodate enough people to make a party. I mean, it was a party. And uh, David not necessarily mix records, would let things in and just start something up, but his selection was just amazing. The only way David Mancuso was able to get away with hosting a disco in his loft was he claimed all of his parties were rent parties. Rent parties were a type of party that were legal in New York City back then where you could charge money for people to come to your house for a party as long as the money was to help pay your rent. And that's what David Mancuso did with most of the money he brought in at the loft parties. Now, the loft is considered by a lot of people to be the birthplace of disco. Mancuso had an awesome sound system and terrific taste in music. Plus, he was constantly scouring stores for unknown sounds that he could introduce to the crowd. Like the song we're hearing right now, Dove, by the British funk group Simande. The loft parties became a weekly event and they were invite only. The party would get going around midnight on Saturday night and could stretch on all the way to the middle of Sunday afternoon. 
Bobby Shaw remembers. Obviously, people were doing drugs. I mean, how could you be up at that hour and not be doing drugs, you know? It was peaceful. You, would, you know, there was never violence. I never saw a problem ever at the loft. How, how late did the parties go? Uh, two, three, four in the afternoon. David Mancuso only wanted people at the loft who were willing to share in a very communal vibe. All the music he played suggested hope, redemption, pride. Remember, back then there was no music known as disco music. The DJs just played whatever they thought would lead to a great night, a great party. Future music executive Corey Robbins, who attended many parties at the loft, remembers one of the most unusual things about David Mancuso's style of DJ. He didn't use a mixer. He used two turntables, but he didn't use a mixer. He would just, he would let a record end and then play the next record. There was definitely a trace of hippie idealism at the loft, and a lot of the music was hippie-influenced. For instance, Mancuso would play the English psychedelic group Traffic. Or the jazz funk of war. If the loft had a theme song, well then, appropriately enough, it was House Party by Fred Wesley. Meanwhile, over on West 43rd Street, a club opened in an old Baptist church and was christened, appropriately enough, the church. Inside, there were murals of the devil and of angels with exposed genitalia. This was way too controversial, and the city closed the church down pretty quickly. It opened shortly thereafter, though, renamed The Sanctuary, and the angels now had clusters of grapes painted over their private parts. Corey Robbins, who was a local DJ at the time, remembers the scene. Yeah, well, I was never a drug user, so I did, I did drink, but I, I would never use drugs. And you, you didn't really see, in the gay clubs, and I went to gay clubs too, uh, a lot of the best DJs worked in gay clubs, and a lot of the records broke out of gay clubs, loads of them. Uh, probably the most important clubs were the gay clubs in the in the mid seventies, um, and those were where you wanted to get your records played. I would see poppers, you know, like they would have these little vials of whatever that is, amyl nitrate, I think, and then you know, they'd put it on their shirt and sniff their shirt while they were dancing. The Sanctuary's DJ Francis Grasso had been on the scene for a while. He got his first gig in 1968 when Terry Knoll didn't show up one night for work at another club because he was reportedly too stoned out of his mind to leave the house. When he started spinning at the Sanctuary, Francis Grasso decided the DJ set should be a journey and not just a string of unrelated records. While David Mancuso preferred lush, inspirational tunes, Francis Grasso focused on hard rhythm. He played the more rhythmic rock records, plus African records like Ola Tunji's Drums of Passion. Drums of Passion pretty much became Francis Grasso's signature tune, and he liked Latino grooves, so he played a lot of Santana. Francis Grasso is the DJ who really began the idea that it was the DJ who was the star to disco, not the records. He was a musician, and the turntables and mixer, they were his instruments. At the same time, 
at a club on 22nd Street called The Gallery, Nikki Siano was hard at work perfecting the art of mixing records as we know it today. The Gallery had the most sophisticated sound system of any club around with pitch variation on the turntables so he could adjust the speed, allowing for really seamless crossfades. And on top of that, he used three turntables to play his favorite parts of records over and over in rapid repetition, extending the break into infinity. If you think about it, Nicky Siano was really a precursor to early hip-hop DJs. There were discos springing up all over New York back then, and just about every club-goer from that period had their own favorite. For instance, Nile Rodgers, who went on to form Chic with Bernard Edwards, has this memory. The other club that was downtown that was super important that I don't see people talk about much anymore was a Persian club called Darfish. Now, the Persian scene and how influential they were on disco was super important, and I don't know why they're not in the history books, because Darvish was one of the most important discos in all of New York City. It had the very, very sort of hip Persian crowd. That's where I met Gagouche. That's where I met the group that wound up becoming Dr. Buzzard, Savannah Band, August Darnell, and people like that, and Cody Mundy. They were all involved in that early disco scene. And in the summer, the disco scene migrated with the gay community to Fire Island, a vacation spot outside of New York City where a different club scene emerged. Bobby Shaw remembers that world. Well, it had the pavilion, which was an amazing scene. It was a club that stayed open until like 10, 11 in the morning. Uh, there was no air conditioning, which was amazing. So everybody was sweating. And it, it, it created a very sexual atmosphere. Music journalist Peter Bronstein wrote, Bonafide revolutions, whether political, cultural, or spiritual, occur infrequently in history, and it's possible to pass an entire lifetime without experiencing one. What then do transcendence seekers or would-be revolutionaries do in the meantime? One option is nightlife, one of society's few sanctioned antidotes to the monotony of the day-to-day. Nightlife is, in a sense, revolution during the off-season. That pretty much sums up the feeling at the beginning of the 70s. All those protest marches in the 60s, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, had all climaxed, come to an end. They achieved some things, but not everything that everybody wanted. And now how do you continue that revolutionary spirit, especially while holding down a job and living a normal life? You do it at night. When we come back, how disco morphed into a social movement, lifestyle, and its own genre. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy to use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. 
So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. In the first years of the 70s, there was a major disillusionment in America, especially among youth. There was this realization that the counterculture wasn't going to bring on a hippie utopia after all, that maybe youth really couldn't change the world. It was that feeling of shared disappointment that The Who captured so perfectly in Won't Get Fooled Again. But so many of the behaviors associated with the counterculture, the sexual revolution, the drug culture, they all continued into the 70s, got even bigger. But they became completely delinked from ideology. So basically, the idealism was tossed aside, the hedonism stayed. The protest marches were in the past. Now it was time to look for a job, save some money, and on Saturday night, let off some steam. And this was an ideal youth culture in which disco could incubate. Until 1974, disco was whatever DJs at the New York clubs said it was. Like that record we just heard a little bit of, Life and Death and GNA by the Abaco Dream. It was a real melting pot. Jazz fusion, rock album cuts. The Mexican by the obscure British rock band Babe Ruth was a favorite around town. There were danceable soul singles. Obscure European imports. Anything, really, that would create the right mood on the dance floor. David Mancuso found a record by a Spanish group called Barabbas while he was on vacation in Amsterdam, and he turned several of the songs on their album into club favorites, including a track called Woman.
But one thing was for sure. The DJs pretty much sidestepped the hits. If it was on the radio, it was already over in the clubs. The DJs preferred album cuts, B-sides, singles that were never hits. And from all this seemingly unrelated music, the DJ would locate the interlocking parts and stitch them all together in a way that really caused dancers to experience music in an entirely new way. Now, the early productions that hit upon the formula that the DJs were looking for were disco hits only unintentionally, since no one was making records with the aim of having them played in New York clubs. Everyone's goal was still, let's get a record on the radio. Now, as it happened, a few records really hit the bullseye on the dance floor and began to set the template for what would come next. And most of these proto-disco records were coming out of Philadelphia. Philadelphia had a long history as one of America's music capitals. It was the home of Dick Clark's American Bandstand, which, as we discussed in our episode on The Twist, was broadcast nationally five days a week and which had the power to really turn a song into a hit. Not surprisingly, a lot of the featured songs were on a local Philadelphia label called Cameo Parkway Records, the label that Chubby Checker's Twist was released on, in fact. But by the mid-60s, Dick Clark had moved Bandstand to Los Angeles, and Cameo Parkway, they'd gone bankrupt, leaving some of the best session musicians in the whole country to try and figure out what to do next. Now, by 1968, a core group of these players emerged and began to have hits under a whole slew of different names. Recording as Cliff Nobles and Company, they had a top 10 smash in 1968 with a song called The Horse. The next year, they had another hit, this time under the name Electric Indian with a song called Kimo Sabe. Eventually, the group named itself MFSB. They told the press that it stood for mother, father, sister, brother. In reality, MFSB stood for something a lot dirtier. I'm sure you can figure it out. At the center of this group of musicians was the rhythm section of Norman Harris on guitar, Ronnie Baker on bass, and perhaps most importantly, Earl Young on drums. These were really the first musicians who figured out that there was an appetite for a certain kind of record in the discos and started making music tailored exactly to that sound. At first, they were just making soul records for the radio under the supervision of the biggest producers in Philadelphia, Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff. But... Earl Young was developing a drum style that wasn't really like anything else out there. In contrast to, say, the classic Motown dance records, which featured a backbeat complemented by hand claps on the two and four. Earl Young instead was playing four on the floor. That is, he was hitting the kick drum with every beat of a 4-4 beat. Earl Young's use of this beat first showed up very prominently in a 1972 record by the Intruders called Win, Place, or Show. Show. 
Now, the use of that beat was clearly intended to suggest the galloping of a horse, inspired by the horse racing analogies found in the lyrics to Win, Place, or Show. So it was kind of a novelty. But Earl Young knew he'd hit upon something pretty cool. And by the intruder's next release, I'll Always Love My Mama, in 1973, he augmented that same beat with a hi-hat playing eighth notes. And then you throw in some syncopated percussion and you have the disco beat in all its glory. The club DJs really love those records, and they're among the first ones that really sound identifiably like what we would call disco. But as I said, they weren't made with the discos in mind. Nor was a record that many critics contend is the first true disco record, a record called Girl, You Need a Change of Mind by Eddie Kendricks, who was formerly from The Temptations. Now, this record had all the ingredients you could ever want in 70s disco. It had the beat, the peaks and valleys that would drive a dance floor crowd into a frenzy, and several long instrumental breaks. And on top of all that, it was seven and a half minutes long. DJs always love long records, which keep the groove going longer, and which additionally provide them the opportunity for a bathroom break. Girl, You Need a Change of Mind truly was the perfect disco record. But it was also an accidental disco record. Frank Wilson, who produced it, has said he wasn't even aware the disco scene existed when he made the record. He says he was just trying to make a hit for the radio. And the extended instrumental break? Well, that was actually no different than what his fellow Motown producer Norman Whitfield was doing at the time with The Temptations. So I'm sticking with my contention that the first people who realized they were making disco records while they were making them were our friends Harris, Baker, and Young. There was a reason for this. Harris, Baker, and Young weren't only producers, but they were also recording artists in their own right as part of the group The Tramps. Now, in 1972, The Tramps recorded a moderate hit called Zing Went the Strings of My Heart, which was enthusiastically embraced by the New York club DJs. While this is yet another example of an unintentional disco record, the Tramps made numerous live appearances in clubs in the Northeast as a result of the song's success. And they noticed that there was a particular sound which was really going over with the crowds on the club dance floors. The Tramps returned to the studio armed with this information, and they started producing one disco song after another, all of which were far bigger in the discos than on the radio, starting with Love Epidemic. Now, on that record, we really got to hear Earl Young's signature open hi-hat sound, which became such an important part of disco as the years went by. Harris, Baker, and Young also began to apply their formula to records for other artists they produced, like Smarty Pants by the girl group First Choice. Smarty Pants, Smarty Pants, Smarty Pants, Smarty Pants. 
And in reaction to the 1973 gasoline shortage, which was caused by the Arab oil embargo, Baker, Harrison Young brought us the incredible When the Fuel Runs Out by the Executive Suite. I'll be your shelter, your sister and brother. When the fuel runs out. When there's a storm, honey, I'll keep you warm. When the fuel runs out. When the fuel Now, one record did find its way from the New York clubs to become a massive radio hit. And it came from the most unlikely of places. Yes, that's the same Mama Say, Mama Sa, Mama Kosa chant that Michael Jackson used many years later on Wannabe Starting Something. And Rihanna used in Don't Stop the Music. The original song, Sol Makosa, was recorded in 1971 by saxophonist Manu Dabangu, who lived in the African nation Cameroon, where he was a huge star. In 1972, David Mancuso found a copy of Sol Makosa in a Brooklyn West Indian record store, and he started playing it at the loft. People loved this record, and they rushed to buy every available copy in New York. Luckily, one of those copies made its way to Frankie Crocker, the program director of New York R&B station WBLS. It's the Frankie Crocker Show. Do it, Frankie. Do it, do it. And at the time, the most influential programmer in U.S. black radio. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Frankie Crocker Show. In my career, I have been known to say that uh, this is the show that's bound to put more dips in your hips, more cut in your strut, more glide in your stride. If you don't dig it, you know you've got a hole in your soul and you don't eat chicken on Sunday. Once Frankie Crocker started to play Soul Makosa, Atlantic Records rushed to acquire the rights and get it in the store. It got to number 35 nationally, making it the first record to migrate from the New York discos onto Top 40 Radio. But because the record was so different, it wasn't in English, it was from Cameroon... The music industry took its success as a fluke and completely failed to realize that a new path to the charts was being created. By the way, many, many years later, Manu Dibango successfully sued Michael Jackson for lifting that Mama Say Mama Sa Mama Kosa line. And I should note that the great Manu Dibango died in the spring of 2020, a victim of COVID-19. The next record to bubble up from the discos to the radio was even bigger. By 1973, Barry White had already had a couple of major hits featuring his sexy bass voice and sultry strings. Feels so good. You're lying here next to me. He had this side project, a girl group called Love Unlimited, and they'd had a couple of hits too. On Love Unlimited's latest album, Barry White added an instrumental prelude to the group's song, Under the Influence of Love. He called it Love's Theme. And again, he didn't realize he was making a disco record. (laughs) 
Together, Love's theme and Under the Influence of Love ran for an uninterrupted eight minutes and 17 seconds. As with the Eddie Kendricks record, the length only added extra appeal for the disco DJs, and the song became a major club record. After about six months of club play, Barry White decided, hey, let's put the instrumental out as a single, and he credited it to the entirely fictional Love Unlimited Orchestra. The record went all the way to number one. But once again, a lot of music industry observers thought the record's path to success was a fluke. It was an instrumental, after all. As 1973 turned to 1974, records were migrating from the discos to radio more and more, with Gamble and Huff getting the Earl Young disco beat on a big hit record with Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, The Love I Lost, Part 1. That's right, I said The Love I Lost, Part 1. If a DJ wanted to play both Part 1 and Part 2, he'd have to turn over the 7-inch single and play the B-side. This was becoming an increasing problem as longer songs were becoming the norm now that producers were aware of the potential for success in the clubs and longer songs just wouldn't fit onto one side of a 7-inch record. A solution to that problem was still a year away. And in the spring of 1974, Earl Young's drumming showed up yet again on a classic record. This time it was an instrumental recorded by MFSB called Love is the Message. And it went down as maybe the greatest disco anthem of all time. It was a six-minute instrumental, not the least bit funky, just the sound of a sophisticated fantasy nightlife caught on record. While every DJ played this one, and it became arguably the theme song of the whole disco era, there are those who'll always think of it as the signature song of Nicky Siano during his days at the gallery. And history credits him with turning this one into a massive hit. With the possibility of pop radio success and the money that went along with it, now extremely real, record producers began to consciously apply themselves to making the new style of dance music that the discotheques wanted so badly. And so began the process of codifying disco as a style of music being produced rather than just whatever the DJs were playing. When we come back, disco breaks out of the underground clubs into mainstream America and onto radio stations across the country. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. 
a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. At the start of the 1970s, disco culture was still pretty much kept a secret from most of straight America. Word began to get out a little when journalist Vince Letty published the first national press piece on the disco scene in September 1973 for Rolling Stone, entitled Disco Rock Party. And yes, that's party spelled with five A's. But what ultimately mainstreamed disco culture was the 1974 recession brought on by the oil embargo. It was definitely cheaper to pay a DJ $50 than to hire live entertainers. And the cover charge for entrance to a disco was way less expensive than a ticket to a rock concert. Thus, disco started to spring up throughout the country, especially in lower income areas. So what we had in 1974 was a generation of lower middle-class kids who were living out hippie hedonism without any hint of the idealism, unsure about the future, disillusioned about the state of the country. President Nixon was in the process of resigning in scandal and deciding to live for today. If it feels good, do it. Disco was the perfect soundtrack. And while these were very often young white people enjoying music which sprang from black and gay culture, in fact, they weren't any less homophobic or bigoted than most of America was at the time. In some big cities like New York, straight whites, gay men, Hispanics, and blacks may have all shared the same dance floor, but for the most part, it was pretty segregated. There were black discos, Hispanic discos, straight, gay, etc. And it was still very much an underground scene. But then, all at once a magical record appeared that made it all bubble to the surface. And when this song hit, there couldn't be any more doubt that disco was going to be a major force in pop music. In 1973, an L.A. group called the Hughes Corporation released their debut album. It was entitled Freedom for the Stallion. The album was produced by a man named John Flores, who had had some success a couple of years earlier producing a group called The Friends of Distinction. The Hughes Corporation project had nothing at all to do with disco. And there was this one song on the album that Flores couldn't even figure out how to produce. 
It wasn't considered a very important song, so Flores farmed it out to an arranger named Tom Sellers. The song was called Rock the Boat. Now, Tom Sellers was a kind of journeyman arranger originally out of Philadelphia, and as it happened, he'd worked in the past with the MFSB crew. In fact, he's the one who did the arrangement on that electric Indian record that we heard earlier. Sellers had recently come back from vacation in the Caribbean, and inspired by that, he arranged a track with a four-on-the-floor beat that had a little upbeat at the end of each measure. And then he augmented the beat with some syncopated bongos and a kind of light reggae bass line. It was a very cool beat. Almost like a backwards version of a funk beat, and it definitely was unique. But once they recorded it, Everybody involved quickly forgot about it. It wasn't even the single when the Hughes Corporation album came out. But somehow, the song was discovered by New York's club DJs, who started playing it in late 1973. It was a sensation. DJs were putting a copy of the record on each turntable and then cutting back and forth to extend the song. Everybody loved it. The Hughes Corporation's label, RCA, started getting tons of requests from stores, all around New York for this record, and they decided to make it a single. The producers of the song were surprised. It was this random song that they'd completely forgotten about. They lived in L.A., and they didn't know anything about the disco scene in New York. But they were thrilled to learn that this throwaway track was huge in gay New York discos, and so they decided to double down on it. They did something that was possibly unprecedented, but certainly it was very, very smart. What they did is they took the tapes of Rock the Boat back into the studio, and they remixed the song to make the bass drum, electric bass guitar, and the other rhythmic instruments much louder and much brighter. Pop records back then generally didn't have the drums that loud in the mix, and when the new version of Rock the Boat was released, it really sounded distinctive. In the spring of 74, it got on the radio in New York City, and it immediately shot to number one in its second week on the radio. It was crazy. I was a kid listening to New York radio back then, and I can tell you that Rock the Boat definitely didn't sound like anything else. When it went national, it was an immediate sensation, jumping in a few weeks to number one nationwide. Even Casey Kasem professed amazement when he played the record on American Top 40 as it was racing up the chart. Well, this next record got practically no airplay at all when it was released in New York City in February of this year, and consequently no sales. But a few of the big discotheques in New York had copies of the record, and they started playing it along with the other established hits. And the response to this unknown record was overwhelming. Dancers kept requesting it and talking about it, and pretty soon people were going into record stores and asking for it. And this week, it moves up 11 notches to number 12. Here is the Hughes Corporation with the record the dancers love. Rock the Boat. So I'd like to know when you got the notion. Said I'd like to know when you got the notion. Rock the Boat. Don't rock the boat, baby. When Rock the Boat went to number one on July 4th, 1974, there was finally no doubt that the disco sound was ready to take over pop radio. In fact, the onslaught began immediately. The very next week, Rock the Boat was replaced at number one nationally by another disco record, this one from Miami.
Miami was the other American city, besides New York, where club DJs were always quickly serviced with the latest records. This was due to it being the home of one of America's biggest record distributors, a man named Henry Stone, who also owned the Alston record label. Now, Miami is very close to the islands of the Bahamas, and in 1971, Alston Records had a big hit with a record called Funky Nassau by a Bahamian group called The Beginning of the End. You might remember we mentioned that track on our first episode of Speed of Sound when we discussed the evolution of Bahamian music. Beginning of the End's album contains several songs that showcase this really distinctive Bahamian Junkanoo beat, which featured cowbells and goatskin drums, all offset against funky horns. Hearing that music influenced a young engineer at the Alston label named Harry Wayne Casey to form his own Junkanoo group in Miami, which he called Casey and the Sunshine Junkanoo Band. Their early records were a blend of Junkanoo and funk, and due to their really powerful rhythms, they began to find an audience at the clubs. Meanwhile, an artist on the same label named Timmy Thomas released a massive hit called Why Can't We Live Together that just featured Timmy singing and playing a Hammond organ with the drums provided by the organ's built-in drum beat. Yes, that's the record Drake sampled in Hotline Bling. But I digress. When Rock the Boat took off in the clubs, KC wrote a song called Rock Your Baby, with which he intended to tap into that very same Caribbean dance vibe that the Used Corporation were having such success with. KC used the same organ drum machine rumba beat as the Timmy Thomas record, except he changed the speed and he added a four-on-the-floor kick drum. KC was going to record the song himself with the Sunshine Junkanoo band, but... It turned out he couldn't hit the high notes. So he got another singer on the label, George McRae, to record it. Well, Rock Your Baby replaced Rock the Boat at number one and went on to become one of the biggest worldwide hits of the entire decade. For disco, it was game on. The summer of 1974 was the moment when the culture of disco finally began to become visible to mainstream America. Almost five years to the day after the Stonewall riots, this was the true start of the disco era. It would take another five years, almost to the day, for disco to go up in flames as the result of another riot. This one on a baseball field in Illinois. But we'll save that for later. And that wraps up this episode of Speed of Sound. 
Next week, disco reigns supreme as America learns to do the hustle, while celebrities embrace the sex and drug-filled scene at Studio 54. You can find a curated playlist of songs from today's episode on our page at iHeart.com. I'm Steve Greenberg, and until next time, you can find me on Twitter at Stevie G Pro. Speed of Sound is executive produced by Lauren Bright Pacheco, Noel Brown, and me. Taylor Shacoin is our supervising producer, editor, and sound designer. Additional sound design by Tristan McNeil. Until next time, keep your feet on the dance floor and always keep reaching for that mirrored ball. Speed of Sound is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need— eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.